0: Let me read our text. We're beginning in verse 15, Matthew 24, 15 and following. This is Jesus speaking. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, No human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So... If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then... Appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Lord, as we enter into a difficult text, pray that you'd give us understanding. Yes, that we would have that understanding by your Spirit's power within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning I um, had about a 15 minute introduction that went along with Daniel 12. Daniel 12 was our scripture reading today, and in fact, there are lots and lots and lots of connections between Matthew 24 and Daniel 12, but when I looked at um, how long that would take, um, I realized that probably wasn't going to be the most helpful. So, uh, what we're going to do today is, is simply look at Matthew 24, we just don't have time to do both of those. I would love to talk to you about all the research that I did with... Uh, with <laughs> those two chapters and their connections, but we're going to stick with Matthew 24 today. Whenever I travel abroad, which isn't often, I'm a pastor, pastor's salary, but when I do travel abroad, there are usually a couple things that I try to remember while I'm out. Where's my passport? And where's my money? Right? So, so no matter how lost I get, no matter where I end up, wherever I am, even when I can't understand the language of the people around me and I don't know how to get back to where I'm staying, if I have my passport and if I have at least some cash with me, I know that I'm better off than if I did not have those things, right? So, so in our text this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus gives his disciples a, a passport and some cash, And he says, essentially, no matter what happens to you, no matter how bad things get, hold on to these two things. And here are those items in promise form in our passage. Our first is the passport promise. And it is this, the care of God for his elect is extraordinary. The care of God for his elect is extraordinary. And then here's your solid gold currency. The word of Christ is trustworthy. Those are are the two promises that Jesus gives us in this passage. The care of God for his elect is extraordinary. And the word of Christ is trustworthy. So, So to the first point, the passport promise... The care of God for his elect is extraordinary. If, if you're wondering what that word "elect" means, it means what it sounds like it means. It has as the sense of, of God's chosen ones, those whom God has foreordained would belong to His eternal kingdom. Our, our Bibles use the word "elect" because it comes straight from the Greek word eclect." And that word means "chosen by God, gathered by God, called out by God. These elect are the same people that Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 12. Here's just a little bit from Daniel 12. said those people whose names are written in the book, those are the elect. When you get to Revelation and you read about those whose names are written in the book of life, those are the elect. All throughout Matthew's gospel, we've been seeing these people for whom God is revealing the kingdom to. Those who have been set apart by God as his children, those are the elect. That's Who Jesus means God's care for these people is extraordinary, as God directs history, which is what we see happening in Matthew twenty-four. As God directs history, He does so with a particular eye on His children. And if you're wondering why are we talking about this, well, look at how many times He uses the word "elect" in this passage. Look at verse twenty-two. Jesus says that that the days of great difficulty that are coming. Those days are cut short so that the elect would survive, but for the sake of the elect, he says. Look at verse 24. There's going to be false Christs and false teachers and false prophets, and they're all, they're, their aim is to lead God's children astray. Their aim is to lead, if possible, Jesus says, astray even the elect. And what's implied there is they won't be able to. And then look at verse 31. This summary statement of all history, what we're looking forward to in the redemptive story is that the elect are gathered by the angels that Jesus sends out. You see God's extraordinary care here? Well, that second promise that we're going to be looking at as we work through this passage is that Jesus' word is trustworthy. And we don't actually see this until the very end of the passage. Look at verse 35, but it's, it's so dramatic that, that we have to focus on this. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Which is an echo of what we've seen in Scripture before. Right? The, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus is saying, my word is the word of God. You can trust what I say. There will be many who try and adjust and tweak the things that Jesus says. Those who, through doing that, will try to lead God's people astray. There will be false Christs. There will be false prophets. But the word of Christ, the message of Christ, never, ever, ever changes. His word is sure. Though the entire earth melts away, Christ's word remains. And so, so the message to us as his people is that even while the world falls apart, we are to continue trusting him. That's solid gold, isn't it? You see why that's money you'd want to keep in your pocket? No matter what happens, this is more valuable than gold. This is, gold melts away at some point. If all of thing, everything in all creation melts away, gold's going with it. But God's word remains. Nothing else in all of creation is more valuable than that as currency. So no matter where you go or what happens to you, if you're trusting in Christ's promises, you have hope. All right, so as we go through the passage this morning, it's going to feel like a, a journey into the unknown, <laughs> because that's what it is. If you get confused, though, about what happens on our trip, um, or, if, or even if you disagree with me about how I'm understanding Christ's prophecies here, here's what I want you to remember, no matter what, all right? All right? What is absolutely clear in this text, Jesus' message for his followers is that they will be uniquely cared for by God and they can trust his word. So if you think I'm wrong about everything else that I'm about to show you, you can agree with me on that, can't you? I hope so. You are uniquely cared for by God if you're in Christ and you can trust Christ's word. So let's agree to those things. And let's begin our trip together. Take that God's kingdom passport and Jesus' promises and let's let's go. All right. So this whole section here that we're looking at today begins with Jesus' prediction about the destruction of Jerusalem. Already you're like, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Remember, remember that's the question that Jesus has been answering here. If you if you go back to chapter 24, verse 2, where Jesus began this conversation, this um what we call this discourse, look at Jesus, look what he says in 24.2. He tells his disciples that the temple is going to be destroyed. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's Jesus' statement that gets a reaction from the apostles in verse 3. When will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. When there will not be one stone left upon another. So, so everything we looked at last week and everything that we're studying this week and next week, and then in the fall, because we're going to take a break after next week and we're going to line by line go through the Apostles' Creed for our summer series. But then in the fall, we're going to get back to chapter 25. And all those parables in chapter 25, everything Jesus is talking about as he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives is in response to the question, when will these things be? So that's the question. Here's the answer. Verses 15 through 22 tell us about the destruction of the temple, that part of the question. And we know that's what Jesus is talking about because of what he says in verse 15. Look at verse 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand that the idea here is if you're a Jewish reader, you know that in Daniel that that... Abomination of desolation was a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. And that happened in 137 B.C. And so they know that language that Daniel was using was prophesying a time for the destruction of the temple. And here Jesus is cluing the readers in. Same thing is about to happen. The idea here is is when you see the evidence, when, when Christians see the evidence around that the desolation, the, the destruction of the temple is coming, then he says, look at verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So you see this trouble coming? Get out of town. This is a very specific warning to a very specific group of people, those who are in Judea. Do you see the geographic marker there? Let those who are in Judea flee. And this is a very specific time. In verse 34, we learn that these things happen for this generation that Jesus is speaking to. So how quickly are they to flee Judea? That's the next few verses. Very quickly. Get out very fast. So quickly, in fact, that if you're in the fields, don't even go back to your house to pack your bags. So if you're out in the... the, The areas, the fields surrounding Jerusalem, farming like many of them would have been doing, and they see those troops coming, don't go home, leave. If you're on the roof, don't even go back downstairs. Just go across the rest of the roofs, all your neighboring houses. And that's the way that they're constructed. They didn't have pointy roofs, they had flat roofs. So if they're on the roof in the evening, in the cool of the evening, and they see these things coming, get out of town. And it's to be so urgent, that exit from Jerusalem is to be so urgent that it will be difficult for pregnant mothers. It will be difficult for nursing moms because they'd be slowed down. And we better hope, he says, it's not in the winter that these things happen. Why? Because the rivers flood in the winter. And it's hard to cross the rivers. It would be hard to flee. And we better hope it's not on Sabbath. Why? Because if it's a Sabbath day, then the city is closed up if you're not observing Sabbath, then you're going to be, uh, you're going to have trouble when you're trying to travel on Sabbath. So why all this fuss? What's going on? Well, verse 21 tells us. Jesus quotes Daniel 12, and he says this time of great trouble, another time like the time that Daniel talked about, is coming it's falling upon Judea. Look at verse 21. There will be, Great tribulation, not the great tribulation, a great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and that sounds exactly like Daniel, no and never will be. That's new language, which is to say, just notice, and never will be. This isn't final already. We can see this isn't final. If there will be time after this, this isn't some final time of destruction. If you've read the history of Rome's assault on Jerusalem, In 70 A.D., you know why Jesus would describe this as a time of great tribulation. And I'll I'll be brief with the history because most of us aren't familiar with it. So we're going to go through 30 years of a history lesson here in just a few minutes. Um, in, In the 40s A.D., so Jesus died, 33 A.D., there were already zealots at that time, but in the 40s of that century, the zealots began to, to gain more influence in, in that land. Um, these, these people were a nationalistic group who wanted the Romans ousted. They wanted them out. And they were willing to violently revolt to get rid of them. In fact, both of the people crucified beside Jesus were zealot murderers. And, and Jesus took the place of Barabbas, who was also a zealot murderer he was a Jewish nationalist these zealots throughout the decades began to gain more and more control and prominence in Jewish politics and with every act of oppression from Rome Rome owns the land they govern the land with every act of oppression from Rome more people joined the zealot cause and there were various riots Violent riots incited by the zealots throughout the 40s and 50s. And then those violent reactions from Rome were often overreactions, which caused more people to join the rebel cause, which brought more violent reactions from Rome. In fact, you could summarize those three decades from the the 40s through the 60s with just that pattern, revolutionary murmurings and revolutionary riots Violent reaction from Rome, more riots, and so forth, back and forth, and back and forth they went. And there came a point when the governor did something he ought not have done. He withdrew Jewish gold from the temple. And he did that in order to pay for what he called public works projects. That was debatable, whether he used it for that or not, but it, it didn't go over well with the zealots. The, the, the nationalists publicly protested. And in reaction, the governor sent soldiers into Jerusalem to intimidate the zealots and demand that those who had insulted the governor be turned over to be arrested, so we could make an example out of them. Well, the Jews, of course, refused to turn over their, their own, and the governor sent soldiers in to march on the city. There's a confrontation. There's another huge riot. Dozens and dozens of Jews were killed, mostly by the stampeding soldiers as they entered the city. Protesters were arrested. And as an example, to make an example out of those who had opposed Rome, they were flogged and they were publicly crucified. This, of course, led to more protests, which led to more opposition from the Roman government, which led to the strongest, most violent reaction from the Zealots as of that time. So violent that they they pushed the Romans out of the city. And that the Zealots saw this fleeing Roman army as a signal. Now was the time. Now was their opportunity to take the country back over. And so they did. They they continued to push the Romans all the way back to the coast. And they took over uh, forts as they went along, and they pushed them back. All this was in 66 AD. So you're tracking with history. We're beginning in the 40s, moving up to the 60s. Now we're in 66 AD. So it's an extremely violent time, uh, as the Zealots moved their way out towards the coast, they killed almost any Gentile that they came across because they were considered not loyal to the cause. In return, now that the Jewish Zealots had taken over Roman territory, Romans saw this as an act of war, and they fought back to reclaim their lands. So with with thousands of fresh troops arriving now from Italy, Rome began their re-invasion of this territory. They started up in the north in Galilee, and they easily reclaimed all those cities. I mean, you have Jewish farmers fighting against trained soldiers. So Rome reclaimed those cities that had been taken over by the militiamen. They continued south and eventually came to Jerusalem and surrounded the city. This is about 68 AD now. And when the Christians saw that, what do you think they did? They left. That this signal of Roman soldiers marching on Jerusalem was a signal to the Christians it was time to leave, and they did. Nearly all Christians left Jerusalem at that time. They were seeing an echo of what had happened in the destruction of the first temple 230 years prior. They knew their history, and they knew Jesus' prophecy, and they they wanted to survive this time of tribulation. They weren't going to sit around and watch. They heeded the words of Jesus. They left the city. And about that time, the Roman troops temporarily withdrew. This was the fall of uh, of 1968, of 68 A.D. (laughs) Fall of 68 A.D., And they returned the next year in the summer of 69, not that summer of 69. So as the Romans advanced, they're surrounding the city. The Christians are gone and the Romans began to build up their siege ramps because if you know history, this is what Romans are good at. The Romans are very good at siege warfare. And they began to build up their ramps in order to eventually attack the walls of the city. Meanwhile, within Jerusalem the zealots had fractured into two parties and a civil war broke out between them and they destroyed each other's resources, including their food resources. And they had any non-Jew within the city killed. So if the Christians had not fled already, they would have been killed during this time. That civil war within the city walls led to a severe food shortage. So remember, Rome is occupying the the land all around the city, or the Romans are, the Roman soldiers are, and the citizens of Jerusalem had planned to be able to withstand a siege such as that, but then they burned each other's food stores, and so they had no way to survive, and there was a severe food shortage. The citizens could not escape to get food, Those who did try to escape were captured and killed by the Romans. So many people began dying of starvation within the city that the the able-bodied citizens couldn't keep up with the burials. And most people were even too weak because they were hungry. They They couldn't dig. And as a result, the dead bodies began to pile up and the smell of the dead bodies piling up in the city was so horrendous even to the troops outside of the city that the general of the Roman army is said to have thrown up his hands toward God and shout that this was not his doing. He wanted his desire was Jewish surrender, but they wouldn't. There are stories during that time that are too awful to tell. There are stories of of mothers eating their own infants. There are stories of people eating their own waste. It's a categorically horrific time. For Jesus to call it a great tribulation is accurate. Eventually, sometime around the summer of 70 AD, the Roman siege works were completed. They stormed the city and they quickly won the war against the starving Jews. The revolutionaries in Jerusalem never surrendered, and all of them who didn't starve to death were killed by the Romans, including women and children. Only 700 people survived, and these were the 700 tallest and strongest Jews. They only survived because they were spared by the Romans to be used as trophies when they marched them back. So they were paraded back, these 700 men were paraded back to Rome as victory trophies and then they were killed or enslaved and because the roman general believed the temple to be the source of all of these troubles he systematically dismantled the temple stone by stone by stone exactly as jesus had predicted and not one stone was left upon another this is this is history and it is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And that leads us to verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now this is a confusing verse, and here's what I think it means. This is, this is debatable, all right? So this is, through my studies this week, this is what I've come to conclude God's judgment on Jerusalem was a type of judgment day. Much like the judgment that God had toward Babylon that we read about in Isaiah 13 a few weeks ago. It wasn't the final judgment day, but it was a foreshadowing of a final coming judgment. And it very much was like a final judgment day for those tens of thousands of Jews who were killed. So when Jesus says, if those days time of tribulation, if those days had not been cut short, I think he's saying that if that horrendous war were allowed to continue and go beyond Judea, eventually the Christians who had fled the city would have been caught up and they would have been killed and the advance of the gospel would have stopped. Right, remember the advance of the gospel is reliant on God's people taking the gospel out. And so if they had been killed then people who would have otherwise become Christians through the hearing of the gospel would never have heard the gospel. And that's why God prevented the expansion of this war any further. God stopped the war. As he said he would through the prophets and through Jesus, God judged the city. He judged the city for their rejection of Messiah. He destroyed the temple that had become an idol for the Jews. God could have let that war spread, and it it could have meant destruction for all the world. That could have been the beginning of the end. But he did not let that happen. Those days of tribulation were cut short. Why? But for the sake of the elect. God's care for the elect is extraordinary. So extraordinary, in fact, that Jesus warns his followers in the next few verses not to be deceived because even after that time even after that time of tribulation there will be more false christ and there will be more false prophets who will rise up look at verse 24 for false Christ's and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect what's jesus doing he's warning the elect ahead of time god's care for his elect is extraordinary and so he warns them Don't be led astray. His warnings are a show of his care, the same way that a parent would warn their child, don't run into the burning fire or don't run into the highway. I tell you these things because I love you. You're my child. Jesus's warnings show his care, his love for his people. Look at verse 25. See, I've told you beforehand. So when you, when you, begin to experience these things, remember Christ's love for you, that he has told you beforehand that there would be false teachers. He cares for you. He's protecting his own. He's saying, no matter what happens, remember, you belong to me, you're mine. This is your passport, your citizenship in my kingdom. He's telling his followers That when Jerusalem falls and the the temple's destroyed, you're going to think that the end has come because it's going to be so horrific. And you're going to think that the Son of Man has returned. Son of Man is another way of saying Messiah. But the end hasn't come. I haven't returned when you see those things. And he says there will be people in the midst of that difficulty calling themselves Messiah. And they will... They will say, they come in the name of Messiah. Don't believe them. They're deceivers, sent by the deceiver to lead you astray. Don't be led astray. You belong to my kingdom. You see what he's saying? Do you see his encouragement here? And then he goes on in verses 27 and 28 to basically say, when I do come back, you'll know it's me. Look at 27 and 27. And 28, for the lightning, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And in this kind of cryptic passage from Job, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What he's saying here, in apocalyptic language, is you will see Jesus' return. It will be like how everyone in the city can see a flash of lightning. There aren't secret lightnings. Secret flashes of lightning. Everybody sees it. There is not a secret return of Christ. It will be so visible, it will be like how a carcass is visible to vultures. You see the vultures? If we're at our house out in East County, we see the vultures, buzzards flying around. We know that they're circling because they see a carcass. There are not secrets when it comes to Christ's return. His return will be visible. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's keep going in the passage. This next section is a little bit more difficult, so bear with me. Verse 29, we talked about this one a couple weeks ago. This is an echo of some of the apocalyptic language we saw in Isaiah 13. So in verse 29, Jesus is taking the destruction of Babylon and he's applying that same cosmic destruction language to the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, what tribulation is that? Well, in the context here, he's talking about that fall of Jerusalem, that difficult trial. The tribulation of verse 21, the destruction of Jerusalem. Immediately after that, or as a result of that, we can see the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That is massive. That seems like the end of the world. The same thing was said of the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 13. Look at Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light, the sun will be dark at its rising, the moon will not shed its light. Almost the exact same language, isn't it? And remember, this doesn't mean that when Babylon fell, that the stars and the sun and the moon actually ceased to shine. That, that, that didn't happen when the Babylon was destroyed. This is figurative language. There is similar language in Isaiah 34.4. When the country of Edom, where the Edomites lived, when Edom was destroyed. Isaiah 34, 4. All the host of heaven, that's to say the stars, shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll, like like we sang. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. That sounds like in time stuff, but it happened when Edom fell, which was a foreshadowing of in time stuff. So the idea is that when God judges a city, when he pours out his wrath on people, even those seemingly inanimate lights in the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars, they they turn their shining faces away from the sight of the destruction. Some of them are even said to be so affected that they never again show their light. The meaning that the prophets and that Jesus wants us to understand is that God's wrath towards sin is so horrific that all of creation is affected by the strain. Jesus is using this language in verse 29 to say that the destruction of Jerusalem is worse than the destruction of Babylon. It will be like a destruction that no one has ever seen before. And it's worse then the fall of Edom, it will be like a destruction like no one has ever seen before. It is so catastrophic that even the powers of the heavens are shaken by what takes place. Why? Think about what has just happened in redemptive history. God, the eternal creator of all, sent his very son to save his people from their sin, and they killed him. Don't don't forget all that we've just studied in chapter 23 and all of those seven woes that Jesus was pronouncing towards the city, all these warnings. This city would kill their own king. And don't forget those parables that Jesus told in, in chapter 21 and chapter 22. The vineyard keepers, they killed the son of the vineyard owner. And they were destroyed. Jesus said these things were coming. I think we don't, probably because of our I know because me, even just studying this week, because of my focus on myself, our, our individualistic attitudes, we don't realize how wicked it was for the Jews to kill the Messiah who was sent to deliver them. It was worse than the way that Babylon had treated God's people. It was worse than the way Edom had treated God's people. I don't know if you remember from Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus is talking to these cities who have rejected him, and he says, it will be worse for you than it was for Sodom. You Remember that? Remember what Sodom did? Sodom and Gomorrah, for God's own people to destroy God's own son, we can't expect that God would not judge them for these things. And God punished them severely for their iniquity. Listen, to reject Jesus as king is a severe act of rebellion against God. He has sent Jesus to save us from our sin. He has sent him to to redeem us from the world. And he sent him to rule over us as our king. Don't think that rejecting him is a light thing. If God would destroy his own temple in his own city that was meant to be a light for all the world to see because of their rejection of Christ? What judgment do you think he has in store for you? If you are right now rejecting Christ as Messiah, as King over you, repent. You have today given to you. Repent and turn to Christ. He offers his salvation freely to you. Let's go on, though, to verse 30. It says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, Jesus, remember how prophecy is weaving Scripture together. Jesus is weaving together here Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 12. Both of these are combined into this verse. Here's what Daniel 7, 13 says. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there's that clouds, there's heaven, there came one like a son of man, same language, he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now recognize, where does that scene take place? That scene Daniel is describing is a heavenly scene. Not something that the earth dwellers see, but something that people in heaven are seeing. And look at how Jesus takes that scene from Daniel and he puts it here in verse 30. Look at the elements that we see in both of these passages. I think I have a slide with some, something. There we go. Uh, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, directly from Daniel. And then all the tribes on earth will mourn. Not from Daniel. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. Daniel. The difference between Daniel and Matthew is who they is. They will see. Who is that they referring to? In Daniel, that they is referring to heavenly beings. There's thousands and thousands and thousands, Daniel says, in the heavenly courts observing this. But in Matthew, the they is all the tribes of the earth. And that tribes of the earth language is an allusion to Zechariah. So who are these people? They're from Zechariah. Now, Not many of us study Zechariah very often. Let me just give you a summary of the last three chapters. Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14, you have this time of salvation coming for God's people and also a time of judgment. And there's a a prophecy in chapter 14 of the destruction of Jerusalem. And the day is said to be the day of the Lord. And as a result, Zechariah says, and the Lord will be king. Look at Zechariah 14, 9. I think I have this slide. Not there? Okay. Well, Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. You can look that up. You Write it down. Zechariah 14.9. The Lord will be king over all the earth. Now that sounds like an expectation of Messiah, the one who brings God's kingdom to earth. The Lord will be king. God will be king over all the earth. That's a fulfillment of Daniel 7. All authority being given to the Son of Man. So there's a connection between those two passages already. Jesus is bringing them together. This part about all the tribes of the earth mourning. In Zechariah, it's all of the tribes of the land of Israel. And it's in Zechariah chapter twelve, and it's the Israelites mourning because they have pierced God's servant. What does that sound like? It's like Christ's death, doesn't it? Look at Zechariah twelve verses ten through twelve. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself. So there's the tribes of the land, the families of the land. And here's what Jesus is doing by bringing these two things together: He's prophesying of when He, as Messiah, will be presented before the ancient of the days in the heavenly courts. He's saying, "I'm, I'm going to fulfill that." Daniel chapter seven. And there is a near fulfillment of that. That the close, the nearby fulfillment of that is actually just in few, a few days from this discourse, when Jesus dies on the cross. We know that at some point there in those three days after his death that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth because he says so when, he were, when he's raised from the grave. When he's presented back before, when he goes back before his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's Daniel 7 language. So He's been given the name above all names. So there is some at least partial fulfillment of that Daniel 7 stuff. But the language here in verse 30, look back at verse 30. seems bigger than that. And it is bigger than that. That presentation of Jesus before God to receive his authority is only a partial fulfillment of this. Because he says here that all the nations are seeing his coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. This isn't just a heavenly coming where the angels see him. Coming before the Father, this is Jesus' final coming to the earth. So, partial fulfillment, Jesus before the Ancient of Days, final fulfillment, far fulfillment, Jesus' return. And at the same time, we get partial fulfillment of, of Zechariah. In 70 AD, with the fall of Jerusalem, when all of the tribes of Israel mourn, they mourn with the knowledge that they killed their Messiah. And at the same time, there's a much greater fulfillment of that on our final judgment day, when all the tribes of the earth mourn if they have not received Christ as king. So double fulfillment, verse 30, is a tricky verse because we have to see partial fulfillment in Christ's ascension and partial fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem, but far fulfillment in final judgment day in Christ's return. Verse 31 is actually similar to that. There's multiple fulfillments partial and near, and greater and far. Look at verse 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, at the destruction of the temple, there's a clear sign in redemptive history the temple's gone. There's no place of atoning for sins anymore. The old age of Judaism is over. The promised Jewish Messiah has been enthroned as king. He is the one who atones for sins now. He's been enthroned as king in heaven. The gospel is going to the nations to announce the inauguration of Messiah's kingdom and God's elect from every tribe and tongue and nation are coming to faith in Christ. So that's happening in what we call the church age. Christ is enthroned in heaven. People are coming to trust him as king. The elect are being brought in as as believers into his kingdom. That's going on now, and yet, verse 31 seems bigger than that, doesn't it? And it is. It's more final than that. This is Judgment Day language. God's angels are sent to the ends of the earth to gather in the elect for eternal life. God's care for the elect is extraordinary. Jesus is reminding us here that no matter what happens, whether it is tribulations that are nearby us or far in the future, God hasn't forgotten us. We'll never be forgotten. Coming to faith in Christ is believing that. It's coming to believe that because we've been set apart by God in Christ, we will be preserved by God for the day of Christ's return. And on that day... We will be brought into his visible eternal kingdom. That's our hope. That day hasn't come yet. But we wait for it. We wait for that day with anticipation because we know that we belong to the Father because of the work of the Son. Our Savior, our King, died to redeem us. And he sent his Spirit to apply that redemption to us, to seal us, to cause us to be born again, so that we could live in the hope of his return. If you have ever been bothered, and I know this might bother some of you, but it's in the Bible, you ever been bothered by the idea of election, of predestination? Can you see from this passage why it's important to Jesus, at least? It's meant to be a comfort to Jesus' followers. It's meant to remind Christ's followers that God's plan for them is sure. And it's meant to give them security in the midst of their coming trials. It's meant to give us security in our trials. So listen, whatever you're going through right now, if Christ is your Lord and King, and you joyfully seek to live a new creation life in him even now, well, then you're his elect. He hasn't forgotten about you. That's the point of this. And he never will. He is preserving you. He has kept you from trials. You need to know this. He has kept you from trials that would destroy your faith. And he always will keep you from those. And he has kept you from false teaching. He's preserved you and he's kept you in him and in his true gospel. He's kept you from false teaching that would have otherwise destroyed your faith. And he always will keep you from that. And he is giving you hope even now. In the midst of your trials, he's giving you hope in Christ's return. And you can trust him because his word is trustworthy. That's what we're closing with. That's what he closes with here. Yes, Jesus is coming back. That is certain. And and you can... Take his, you could read this and say the point of all of this is that Jesus is returning. I actually don't think that is the the main point. It's a point. But the main point is that his coming back is a promise from him. And he wants us to know with certainty his word is trustworthy. He is Messiah. He's our king. We can trust him. Look at this last section. As we close, from, from, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. Verse 32, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I've already shown you how all these things that Jesus has prophesied do take place for that generation. But they are to pay attention. This is his instruction, his word to them. To preserve them, they are to pay attention. They are to be on the lookout for those warning signs that the destruction of the city is coming. They are to be on the lookout for those false Christs and the false prophets And to remember Christ's warnings and have nothing to do with those things. They are to continue in faith in the midst of their persecution. All of these things that Jesus is saying were relevant to the people that he was talking to. And he's saying these things to them because he loves them. And he wants to protect them. And he knows that it is through these very disciples that he's talking to that this message of the kingdom will go out to the nations and come to you and me. Those disciples were absolutely vital to Jesus' mission. And Jesus knew that in order for them to take that mission abroad, they had to trust him. They had to trust his word. They had to believe what he was telling them. That's why he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't. He's saying to his disciples, even when the temple's destroyed, even when Jerusalem is gone, and all that you grew up thinking made you Jewish is gone, when all that is gone, remember my word. My word will still be with you. Even when heaven and earth pass away, my word will still be here. Everything I've taught you will still be true. You can trust me. Prince Jesus is trustworthy. And when he says he's coming back, that means he's coming back. We can be assured he is coming back. Even if it takes thousands of years, he is coming back. Even if all the earth is destroyed and the sun and the moon and the stars and all that exists is destroyed. His word is still trustworthy. He's still returning. He still has a plan. And we're a part of it. We can trust Jesus with all of our life. His word is more valuable than any other currency we could possibly put our trust in. I just want you to think as we finish. Think of the effect of both of those promises. When all the world seems to be ending for Christ's followers, they are to remember God has set them apart. He has chosen them. So no matter what happens, God is preserving them for his kingdom. Even if they're tortured, even if they're imprisoned, even if they're persecuted and killed, he is still preserving them for his eternal kingdom. And they can trust what he's saying. Think of what that meant for them. Think of what that means for us. Does he love us? He does. That he would tell us these things... He loves us. He died for us. He is worthy of our trust. He's returning. We can bet our lives on it. Amen.